I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. And I am Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Dune Messiah, the second book in the original series of Dune books by Frank Herbert. In this book, we find... uh, we join up with Paul and the rest of the Atreides family about 12 years after the events of Dune. And so I think that leaves us probably about 10 years or so after Paul of Dune, if I'm correct, somewhere around there. And the story follows uh, Paul dealing with the stress of having the jihad lasted so long, being a messiah, being an emperor, and the <clears throat> impending doom of his prophecies. Mm. And that is the general gist of the story. I thought Shakespeare wrote this, because this is a tragedy. <laughs> oh, that is for sure. It, it totally follows the Shakespearean formula of tragedy, the fall of grace and the uh, uh, and the despondency of the hero. And the no- and, and knowing the, of the failure way ahead of time. Well, and... Let's not forget the added stress of Irulan putting the uh, bite on him to make a baby. And even Chani getting into the act, suggesting that he do it too. Yeah. Talk about pressure, man. That's pressure. Yeah. Just could not get it, get, yeah. get away from it. What was your overall impression of this book? No, overall impression. You know, uh, so I, you had me do all this research for the bad reviews. And, uh, and I, I certainly don't feel that way. I, it was, it, I listened to this story. So I'm out running and doing my various things, uh, as I listened to it, what I was fascinated. What for me was not so much. I mean, he spends a lot of, there's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of uh, telling he's, there's a lot of philosophizing. Is that, is that, is that, is that even a word? But, but I'm just, I'm just You're throwing the English it. teacher. <laughs> doesn't mean I know it's a word. But, uh, you know, this, the, the idea, there's a lot of philosophy that's kind of girding this and a lot of discussion of politics and what does it mean to be the savior of mankind and this whole, uh, and to be leading the, the, the Fremen and the world. So there's a lot of this discussion going on. And I remember, and so this, this may have been the first time that I actually read Dune Messiah. I thought I had read three books prior to, you know, many, many years ago, but I didn't remember anything from Dune Messiah, but I, because I had watched children of Dune, uh, the miniseries way back, I knew that Paul was blind 
and I knew that in Dune he wasn't. So when I, one of the things I was very much interested in is in was seeing how that event and, and the whole, and how that fit into prescience and how that all transpired. And so I was waiting for this to happen throughout the book because I knew it didn't happen in children. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was the thing that, uh, it was short, a very quick read. Right? Yeah. What was oh, it? Yeah. it was like eight or nine hour book long. It wasn't very long at all. Right. It's only, it's only about 300 pages in the book that I had. Yeah. So, so, but that's, so that was my thought, uh, in it. And, you know, again, I read it back in August and then re- reread part of it for the podcast tonight. And it was a, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely more political, not as action oriented. And the plot's a little bit more convoluted. Maybe children are do than children are doing are doing for that matter. But I did like it. It wasn't, it was, it was a good book. Uh, Jim, how about you? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I read uh, the book once on my Kindle. And then uh, when we had to postpone uh, recording, I also listened to it uh, going to and from work. And yeah, it, it went by pretty quick for me. Um, I didn't, I didn't pick up on the philosophical aspects that you did as much, Scott. I, I really enjoyed the political intrigue, uh, of this book and the story and, uh, just felt horrible when Paul was blinded and, uh, but, you know, on the other hand, I was, um, kind of upset by the way that the jihad had gone on and on and on. And Paul, even though he regretted it, didn't seem to do anything about it, anything to stop it. Hmm. Hmm. Can I ask you a question, Jim? Go for it. Do you think that, so the jihad, by the time we hit this, has been going on for what, 12 years? 12 years of jihad. Do you think at that point, and I, I, I think maybe I got the sense as I read through uh, Dune Messiah. Do you think at this point Paul felt like he couldn't stop it, like it was out of his control? Um. Oh yeah, I, I think that might be the case. But uh, you know, the way this guy was worshipped, a word from him could have stopped it. I'm not, man. I'm not. I'm not really buying that, Jim. I think all the way back from Dune, we get the impression that he realizes that the jihad is inevitable. Uh, that this path is the pa- is the path with the path with the least amount of uh, chaos as a result of the jihad. Because if he died or if he went away, the jihad would continue without without with, in just his name and could go into crazy different directions at at this way at least he was guiding it and controlling it to a degree more like um they were i think they refer to it as like civil the the human mentality was about to explode and paul was the catalyst whether or not he stood atop the wave or let the wave wash over him see i just do not feel that um um, it was under anybody's control, really. Yeah. Because it just, it just seemed like a huge frenzy going on, a killing frenzy, a constant killing frenzy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, 
I, I just I just typed into the almighty Google, and I thought I think that this is per, perhaps a response to why Paul perhaps didn't, and maybe as good of a response as anyone. And I there's no who who do I credit for this? Probably uh, this is one answer, and it doesn't even have the person's name on it. So if it's you out there, K H W, this goes for you. Um, he says. Without going into massive details, because he's being swept along or arguably surfing the tides of history, history that has been made a lot, that has had a lot more directing it to its current course than just him and his actions. He was not just the culmination of the Benny Gesserit breeding program, but the man who stood at the focal point of a lot of social cultural meddling. Much of it you've seen here, such as in the uh, Missionar Protectiva's planning of the prophecy of a Messiah, but there's a lot more that hasn't been explained yet. Uh, due to his prescience, he has some ability to see where the changes and can direct the flow of history somewhat, but history itself is like a massive tidal wave. The best he can do is to hope to channel it to a desired path. Uh, stopping it simply is not possible. It has too much inertia by this point in the story. He's not choosing how he wants the universe to be, but rather steering it like he's almost an, an almost out-of-control ship running before a massive storm. He chooses the best of the options, and he can see with his limited vision. At one point, he describes, he describes a view of time as having hills and valleys depending on where he's at any given point. However far he can see is often very limited. And why doesn't he just order them to stop? Apparently in the book, it says this. Uh, Cheney, beloved, he whispers, do you know what I'd spend to end the jihad to separate myself from the damnable godhead of the, the Kizarat forces onto me? And I, she trembled. You have but to command it, she says. Oh, no. Even if I die now, my name would still lead them. When I think of the Atreides' name tied to this religious butchery, but you're the emperor, you. I'm a figurehead. When a godhead's given, that's one thing. That's one thing the so-called god no longer controls. A bitter laugh shook him. He sensed the future, looking back at him out of the dynasties not even dreamed. He felt he felt his being cast out, crying, unchained from the rings of fate. Only his name continued. I was chosen, he said, perhaps at birth, certainly before I had much say in it, I was chosen. So that's this guy's take on the idea that he didn't have much control. Yeah, uh, I agree. And Roland says here in the chat, he says maybe um, he felt that if he tried to stop it, things would be worse. And that's a, that's the impression that I got, that Paul, Paul realized that if he were – that's why he couldn't kill himself and he couldn't leave control because think – his name was more powerful than him if he was not there. It would just, it would lose focus. Too many power hungry people. And you see that with like Korba and stuff. Yeah. You know, people vying for control. So, my overall impression of this book, uh, this is probably my least favorite book. Um, however, it's not a bad book. Actually, I'm not going to take that back because I think I didn't, li- there was one of the house books I didn't like. Did you like Paul of Doom less? Or more. Paul of Dune left me without. I enjoyed Paul of Dune because it was new, but at the same time, if I had to, if I had to give an impression, it's like Dune Messiah leaves an impression on me, and it's not necessarily the best impression. While Paul of Dune doesn't leave as much of an impression on me. Yeah. You know so if I mean? we put like Paul of Dune and we put uh, Dune Messiah into like a boxing ring and having and having him do like a book death match. Death match. Yeah. Do you think who, who would win? 
Well, I think Dune Messiah would win. Okay. And I'm not saying because it's a, I'm not saying because I, I like it more, more just because it made a bigger impression on me, even though that impression was, I don't even want to say negative. I just, I don't, you, the first time I read this book, I didn't like it. And all I wanted to do was finish it. I liked it a lot more this time. And I picked up on some things that we'll get into later that I, I totally missed mm. the first time I read it, yeah. read through. It really, it really does feel a lot like a prelude to the next book. Like it, and I remember thinking that the first time I read it, it feels like the in-between space between something better and what was, hmm. but that's my thoughts on the thoughts on the book. Okay. All right. All right. Well, Jim, why don't you uh, take us into exploring uh, some of the characters or if you want to revisit anything we said, we can do that. Yeah. Um, well, we had a number of characters. Uh, the book starts right out with uh, Irulan, uh, Cytale, and uh, the Spacing Guild Navigator, and Mohaya. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how long the book went before Paul was being featured mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. It just it felt like a long time. Uh, another big thing for me is Irulan feels very different from all of the other books in this one, mm. especially mm-hmm. after Paul of Dune. Yes, but even even the little we know of her in Dune, she feels different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now let me ask you: uh, in the audiobook, Jim, the one that you listened to, was there actually something that happened? The, the interrogation of that one historian did that happen before in the audiobook? Oh yeah, and, did that, uh, was, was that in the was that in Dune Messiah too? It's the prologue. Yes, it's, it's the prologue. prologue. Okay, yeah, yeah. He um, go ahead, Jim. Yeah the the four people that I mentioned uh, once again, as seems to be normal for Frank Herbert, spell out the entire plot uh, before the book even starts. Right. Well, it's one of the, it's, again, it's one of these things like okay. That's a very Shakespearean principle. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, for years I taught Romeo and Juliet in, in high school, and Shakespeare spells out the play in 14 lines, a sonnet at the very beginning of the play. And he says, well, if you didn't get it here, I'm going to show you in the next five acts. And, I mean, that's really Frank Her- what Frank Herbert's doing here. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. yeah that, that meeting, I just, it just it bothered me. The Irulan part is really like in the, in the beginning of the meeting, you get the sense that they're trying to can really convince her to join them. And like, I, even the contraceptive thing, I was on board with that. Like that seemed in character, but how easily she just kind of was like, well, okay. Like I'm already doing something against him. I might as well just be party to this thing that you're doing as well, because we're protected. And I think she kind of feared they would kill her if she said no. But yeah. we are introduced to the face dancers here. And if, if we, I mean, obviously reading all the uh, prequel books with, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert, we were familiar with them. But for people encountering, you know, following Frank Herbert and Dune and then Dune Messiah being the second book, this was a new thing for them. Did they mention them at all in Dune? Even just in passing? I don't remember. I don't yeah. think so. Maybe uh, someone in the chat room can let us know, but I don't remember them. The face dancers being mentioned. Yeah. Do you, Jim? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, in Dune, there might have been. 
I felt like maybe there was a, a time where they just referenced face dancers and, and golas, but they didn't go into what they were or anything like that. Uh, did they yeah, mention golas? Yeah, I think. In Dune? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know they, they mentioned the Tylaxu, and I, I thought it was just like in a passive thing of the Tylaxu and their face dancers and regrowing flesh or something like that. Yeah. Uh, could be wrong. But, yeah. uh, but not only do we see see one even more than in uh what was that house house carino where the other one was really featured with fenring okay even more so than that Sightail has a, a huge personality um like he's completely independent it's not just a, a tylaxu telling him what to do and i think bjazz even states it in the kind of like we are the Tylaxu, yeah. even though they're a product of theirs. I just did a search, and they're saying that they first appeared in Dune Messiah. Okay. So this is our first encounter of the uh, the face dancers. Unless I'll let Roland's looking at it, too, and unless Roland in the chat room finds something different. Uh, yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, well, you know, so we have this conspiracy going on, and we're not really – and we're also introduced to the fact that they are bringing hate into the scene. And, you know, this is, of course, Duncan, Idaho. And um, that was one of the storylines that I was fascinated with that that Paul was really pushing hate out on and said, you know, okay, you have kind of this innate memory, but is there this idea of genetic memory where you really do have all the memories of Duncan? Mm-hmm. And uh, that whole process of him remembering not just that I am Duncan and there's stuff that I can do because I'm Duncan, but him having the literal memories of Duncan. I think that that whole journey was kind of interesting for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I, I, um, I like to watch those, the like growth that you see in him for sure. Yeah. How he struggles with it. Yeah. And how he's manipulated or tr- they try to manipulate. Mm-hmm. What did you think of uh, Edric? the the spacing guild character i i I'm, I'm, i was ambivalent yeah uh, personally yeah, he was a he was kind of a weak weak character in my mind he's very different from the uh navigator experiences we've had in the past yeah well see that yeah. i think that's why i felt like he was just kind of like okay whatever yeah but yeah, yeah. Um, Just you know, I guess um, he needed to be there because because of the uh, being in control of the travel between between planets. They ha- they had to have a representative there, and not yeah. only that, because Paul had control of the spikes. Yeah. Well, moreover, he was blocking out the conspiracy. Um. Yeah, so uh, I mean, so who who else kind of uh, stands out? We have this meeting at the beginning. Um, let's talk about maybe other significant parts. Well, I mean, I guess we can, the growth in the characters in general, like Paul. What did, what? How did how did we see? I just see this defeated guy. He like even in Paul of Dune, and he still seems very. He's angry, but he's still strong, and in this. This version of Paul, he feels he's de- he's defeated. He's given up on stopping the jihad. He's given up on saving Chaney, Chani. Yeah. It's just like he's he has doesn't have much left to him other than to 
follow the footsteps ahead of him if he wants any kind of safety in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, is he giving up or is he seeing prescience in the in the whole Cheney thing? I think it's – well, I mean – He is given the option to save. Right, but then she'd he, be tortured and stuff. Right. <clears throat> so, I don't know. And then Cheney, she seems fairly static to yeah. me. Well, you know, let me, let me go back to Paul here. Paul in this book reminds me of very much – a continuation of the Paul that was in Paul of Dune. Um, I felt in Paul of Dune when I read it that we had a character that was very beginning very much to doubt and and resent him being a figurehead, the Messiah. And I felt like this was a continuation of that, that he was kind of looking out and saying, this has to end somewhere. Right. But... I don't know. And so I did feel like for him, it was kind of a continuation. I mean, I, it, it definitely felt like a natural growth for 12 years, but he had, to me, he had changed a lot. Yeah. By the way, Roland said that Gola is mentioned in Dune, but only in the appendix hmm. of Dune. So that's the only reference it has to. Okay. It. Maybe so, that's where I remember reading it. So now to me, Paul was a despot. Okay. And not, if for no other reason through inaction, yeah. You know, he did not do anything. He didn't want all these people to die, but he didn't do anything to stop it. He just let it go. See, now we're back to the conversation again. Did he, did he just let it go or did he or was he following prescience? This this discussion really becomes full-fledged when we get into children of Dune. Yeah. Of how much do you follow prescience and how much do you blaze your own path? Yeah. And he becomes very much, in in his world, he's very much, here's what prescience has determined. Um, and this is the path he's walking. And so that means letting all this happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he also sees um, what must be done for a better future. And in order for that better future to happen, he's got to be a part of all this horrible stuff. But, you know, what role did Corva play here? I mean, Corva was the one really beating the drum. Yeah, he's like a big religious leader. And I think this is where we get to see, like, Corva was a Fadaikin, right? Yes. Yeah. So Corva was, a, was, a, was an early adopter of Moadib's uh, teachings and then mm-hmm. saw power and filled a power vacuum. And then absolute power corrupts absolutely. Eventually, he wanted more and more, and you're not going to get that while, excuse me, while figureheads in the way. And Mm -hmm. so that's why he kind of conspired, you know, did did conspiracies to make the religious aspect stronger and stronger. And I like that when we see, I mean, Paul's been a part of fashioning this religion. And he's been a part of it on stage and behind stage. And then we see in the, in the scene where he watches Alia perform her rites. And he sees what it's like to be a part of this from the people's standpoint. And what they see and how it sickens him to see how manipulative everything is. And how easy it is to get washed. Even him, who knows what's going on, he's easily washed right up into it. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So what what kind of baffles me though is how Stilgar. I w- I'm not going to say stood by and watched Korba gain all this power, but rather um, didn't do didn't do anything to stop this. You know, I mean, Stilgar should have been aware as a naive of what was going on. Yeah. I I mean, I I think I get the impression in this book, he's more, he's more removed from, he's like the, um, I forget what they call him. He's the technical planet ruler. The, Naive's naive or whatever. Yeah, the naive. Yeah, the mm-hmm. so he's like in command of all the fremen, but Paul's over him, and to a point, he's just kind of let Paul make all the all the choices and kind of, and you see that you see him dealing with struggling with that towards the end of the book where he's kind of just let Paul become so much of a religious figure in his mind that when he's reminded that he's just a person, it shakes mm-hmm. him. Uh, tremendously, hmm. uh, he 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 becomes a weaker character for a for a time. Yeah, that was kind of disappointing to me because in Dune he was such a strong character. Mm-hmm. Looking forward, I, if I remember correctly, I feel like this is the turning point, the like at the end where he just chooses to disobey Paul. Is how is like his turning point back into becoming a stronger Fremen and a stronger leader on his own base. Definitely see that, and when we get to Children of Dune, you'll definitely see him as a stronger leader than he is here, right? Because he had to stand up because yeah, Paul wasn't there, and Ali is not Paul as much as she wants to be Paul, right? So yeah, how about changes in Ali? What what uh, do we see here? This, Wow. Young woman now. The uh, yeah. lover of Duncan. Of hate. Yeah. 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 She's more in control than I remembered her to be in this book. Yes. Yeah, but she's also dealing with a lot of adolescent tension. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A great deal of adolescent tension. I totally did not remember the whole subplot and innuendo of not even innuendo, the blatant, like, Paul and her should have a baby stuff. The incest stuff. I completely, like, right. missed that when I read it the first time. That's right. I, yes. Uh, that seems well, to be... Go ahead. Isn't that what what the Bene Gesserit wanted? Yeah. But, but of course, that wasn't going to happen. Well, wasn't, wasn't there a couple... This was one of the outcomes that they could have done just to get the... The blood. The blood, to keep the bloodline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? She is fairly stable in this book. Yeah. I mean, you get the hint that she, towards the end of her reaching beyond her limits. Um, But that doesn't come into play really into this book. No. But this is a, uh, I liked her in this book. She didn't, again, she's not one of the characters that when I look back on it that stand out, that stood out and saying, oh, this is so great. Like, no. I would say that Corva was one of those. You saw his deviousness. In fact, of all the conspirators, he was the one that 
I kind of focused on the most for me, but hmm. um, why, know. why do you suppose, uh, Paul, who said if uh, Mohayim ever set foot on Arrakis, she was going to be killed? Why do you suppose he changed his mind about that? I think he thought she had a part to play. I mean, he picked her out of the sky. She wasn't coming to Arrakis. He was just like, you're too close. I just had her come down. and I don't know. Because then he, he even left orders that she wasn't to be killed. Right. And that's the order that Stilgar refused. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he would left her alive. Maybe so that she could. Well, she was his grandmother. One. But maybe it was because. Um, so was the Baron. Well, that's true. He didn't kill. The, he didn't kill the man, though. That was all. Well, yeah. see, she she claims that she was not going to Arrakis, but um, I think she was actually. She was going to try to get there secretly somehow. You think? Mm-hmm. I thought she was. That was my impression so. to him. Passing through, but maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's a Benny Jesuit, so that could totally be within her capabilities. Yeah. Uh, there. I don't know. It. Uh, she's she's much weaker than we've seen her in the past. Well, she's she, a lot older. She's a lot older. Yeah. 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 And, and there was a there was a plot point with her. Um. Gosh, I can't remember. She was going to go back to Wallach Nine to consult with the Sisterhood about something, and I cannot remember. Or she wanted was. to, and he refused? I don't remember that. That's what happens when you read two months ahead. Oh, you don't remember, <laughs> you don't remember either, so don't give, me, don't, don't give me crap. You finished the book today. Yesterday? Yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard you say you started it on Tuesday. Monday. Okay, okay. A day off, bud. <laughs> Stop giving me crap. Hey, uh, so let's talk I'm, about some I, favorite. Are there, go ahead. Are there any other points in? Are there any other characters? Or let's talk about some favorite moments in plot, maybe. Ah, uh, okay. For me, so two two big things stood out. From one, it's something I completely didn't pick up on the first time, or if I did, I completely forgot about. And that I found really interesting was the the tarot cards and how. There was the subplot of them being dispersed to muddle up prescience because if anybody was looking into the future, it made it more difficult to see the future around them. And so that all of a sudden you have all these people trying to see the future in the crowd and just making it really difficult for Paul and Alia to see what's going on, uh, what's going on around them. And I, th- I thought that that was, that was really cool. And then, I remember when I was reading it, the thing that really, really stuck out to me as being one of my favorite moments was the plane, the, the Thopter ride with Alia and Duncan, where she's kind of chiding him and he's being like, uh, Hyatt was very honest about everything and just spoke his mind. And he's kind of, yeah, he's just kind of like giving it right back to her. But all at the same time, he's kind of flirting with her, and he gets what's happening. She's not really sure of what's happening yet. And then he kisses her, and he's like, I'm sorry that I took the kiss that I wanted. And she's like, what do you mean that you wanted? And he's like, I'm sorry, the kiss that you wanted. 
And then she's like, oh, maybe I did want that. But just that whole, that whole like back and forth between the two of them where she's getting pissed off, but at the same time, she's intimidated by him. Yeah. And then he says, uh, just be thankful that I didn't take all that was offered. No. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that whole, um, you had mentioned, you know, why did, uh, Mohayim want to go back to, and I think maybe this is what Roland's referring to in the chat room that he was trying to, Paul was trying to save Cheney's life. And he wanted to offer kind of genetic material for the life of Cheney in exchange for that. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so right. kudos to Roland in the chat room for kind of pointing that out. But that's, that's kind of, uh, why that discussion was going on. But yeah. And see that my point for bringing that up was, is there seemed to be a few plot elements here that kind of just stopped and there was no resolution to them. And that was one of them because we never do find out what the sisterhood decided. Well, I don't think, I don't think it mattered because Paul made the decision that he was not going to save Cheney. Uh huh. Um, could have. I don't, how, I don't think at that point she was already pregnant. I mean, how could he have, other than aborting the president? They could have brought him back. Didn't the didn't the offer to bring him bring her back? Yeah, but that was a different that was a different price. That was a different price, and he would have brought her back. And because of the way Duncan had recovered his memories, there was a good chance that she would have. She could have, but the yeah. whole thing with the Thylaxu is that they would have killed him too. Right, brought them both back under his under their control. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I think again, I think one of my favorite um, points here is when the when we have the nukes go off. They, oh, the stone burner. Yeah, the stone burner. So when, you know, we had a stone burner happen. You know, once you know earlier in Arrakis when um, the X guy, mm-hmm. you know, set one off to keep the um, uh, the uh, Sardaukar car from from getting them. And they send it off, and then they have a stone burner here that, um, you know, burns out Paul's eyes, but he's able to still see because of prescience, which is, like, totally awesome. Mm-hmm. I was, like, loving that. But only to a point. Yeah. His, his prescient ends when the twins are born. When Cheney dies, yeah. Yeah, when Cheney dies. So, yeah. mm-hmm. But the, something, something else is that at that moment, when Paul walks out to the, walks out to the uh, desert, Alia also loses a good portion of her prescience. So it's kind of linked. Yeah, they're all kind of linked together. Well, which This is what causes her then in the next book to be uh, such a spice whore. Yeah, to try and get it back. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the other thing I liked. I love when Paul walks out into the desert. Mm-hmm. There's just something about well, something about like him as being blind, walking on the desert, and the unknown that's kind of left there. Mm-hmm. That kind of builds well, he up. He recovered. Into Go ahead. He recovered his honor at that point because yes. that's yeah. what a blind Fremen is supposed to do. Right. 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 It was good. It was. It is this kind of – this is the culmination. I mean, it is kind of, for me, the culminating point in this book. You're this guy that's just struggling, and how do you handle this terrible thing that you've wrought? And this is how he handles it. This is how he, he walks. He just leaves it behind, lets it fall into other hands, and lets – prescience go yeah i think if leto hadn't been born i don't think he would have walked out but i think that he because leto speaks to him through the prescient vision that he lets his uh lets his throne to him right he he can handle what i couldn't when i'm not brave enough to yeah Yeah. well he realized he realizes that the children have been 
uh, born aware, just like yeah. his sister was. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, he can finally lay it down and walk away. Yeah. Going back to the whole Sternber- Stoneburner scene, the, the B-Jazz, I love him in that scene where he's just kind of like, let bygones be bygones and B-Jazz and Paul should be gone. I just, that's one of my favorite <laughs> lines from the, from it. He just like is rhyming and, and he senses that there's something going on and, uh, that they should go. And just the way that he gets around to saying like, we need to go is, is very, uh, B-Jazz is, is kind of toying with Paul, but at the same time trying to get him ahead. And everyone else is kind of just like, oh, he's like that. Othium and his wife are just like, right. he's like, but Paul realizes there's depth to what he's saying. Yeah. So I like what uh, Roland's asking in the chat room here. Why do you think blind Fremen walked into the desert when most of the time Fremen were all about saving water for the tribe? Because they are losing water for the tribe when the Fremen walks into the desert. Yeah. That's a great point, and I don't have an answer. I think it's because hmm. they don't they don't kill without reason. Do they view the blind as being cursed? I didn't think it was that. I thought it was more like because they do that with the don't they mention in one of the books that they do that with the children that aren't suitable for siege life? They just let them sit in the desert and be taken. Mm. Because they're consuming more water than they're regaining if they stay. Mm. So they just let them go. Mm. I don't know. Any ideas, Jim? Well, I'm I'm trying to think back of the ones, the water that they did reclaim from people. And I don't, I, I don't, I can't think of a situation where that would be where they would do that to a blind person or somebody that's imperfect, perhaps, perhaps it's just simply that they're tainted in some way that their water would not, should go to the desert to Shai Halud rather than to the tribe. Right. Right. I mean, I think, I think I I agree with what you're saying there. And I don't know if I would say tainted, but just more like water taken from someone while they're still alive is less that's tainted. Mm. Uh, you know, like because mm-hmm. they they haven't died, then it, it's sacrilege to just kill them. So I don't know, I don't know. Or just kill someone honor. without kill someone without reason would not be right, right? Or without honor, okay. maybe it's an right. honor thing. Yeah, I think that the, when the when the blind walk out to the desert, they're choosing to take their burden off of the siege, and it's more about them taking the burden away from others than to than the siege saying you need to leave. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since we're, we're in this area, let's talk about some of the themes that we saw in this book here. <sighs> uh, I mean, the big ones, religion and government. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. And how dangerous it is when religion becomes government. Right. And, and I think that we see in a lot of scenes, where Paul's making the choice to not allow certain things to become government and keeping them in religious, religious awe. Well, it's almost, and it's almost, so the theme is kind of explored here, but man, in Children of Dune, it's prominent because religion, in a sense, has become government in that book. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing kind of the rise, especially when you look at Corva and what he's doing. He's trying to make religion government. Right. He's trying to make, in a sense, 
Paul, but really it's his the ideal of Paul, the idea of, of Moadib to be the religion, and he is the high priest of this religion mm-hmm. and of the government. Mm-hmm. When I think that's what they show in that little so back to the back to the prologue, right? Um when we have the um when we have that whole interrogation of the historian from X, right? Mm-hmm. Uh the fact that he's being interrogated secretly under the watchful eyes of you know, Cor- uh, of you know Corba's agents, uh, these in the, the fact it's in the name of religion, in the name of Paul, and Paul's doesn't has seems to have no clue that that's going on, mm-hmm. is very telling. Yeah, yeah. Any but, any thoughts, Jim? As far as religion and government are concerned, uh, in, in religion is becoming the government, which is really scary in any case. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. The the fanaticism uh, and, I, and and the justifications for acts is uh just is just really really disturbing to me when I think about the crusades, the knights templar, you know, uh and who were just an insane bunch of robbers basically and murderers. Um and how they justify it, it, you know, you hate to see that happen. Right. Even the conquistadors, when they came into to Mexico and, uh, and to, you know, the southern, the southern Americas and how that all went down. Certainly you see that, mm-hmm. you know, in the name of the queen, but also in the name of the church. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, and you can go a step further and say, okay, all of the, uh, Mesoamerican people that died from that, from just the exposure to the diseases that weren't there, yeah, would might be considered an act of God by the conquistadors. Yeah, hmm. I I do have a question, and this is kind of under uh, unrelated. So, if you want, I'm going to mention it, and if you want to come back to it, we can. Uh, what did you feel about? How did you feel about? So, Paul finds out through Cheney. That Irlan has been, you know, feeding Cheney a contraceptive, keeping her from giving birth, and finds out too that she's kind of in league with the conspiracy, and yet refuses to kill Irlan. Yeah, it, uh, it's because she prolongs Cheney's life, and that's why, okay. That's why he he doesn't act out against her, and Cheney's like, "Why won't you?" And he doesn't he doesn't want to tell Cheney because she's going to die, right? But it's because. If it weren't for Irulan, Cheney would have gotten pregnant a while ago and, yeah. and died already. Yeah. That's a hard place to be in. It is. Now, now would she have died or would she was the her death as a result of, of all the drugs that she was being fed? I think it's a – I think that her death was inevitable, whether it be because she died at birth or she died from torture after having the children. Mm. Is that, kind of, that the vision that Paul had with the moon falling into the planet? Yeah, she was his moon. Okay. And that she was, because he mentions that he's like, I, when he says that I, I, when he's at her deathbed, he's saying, I wish that she, I wish that I could have chosen something different for you, but the other options were you tortured and killed that way. Uh, as well as the children. 
when Johnny found out that she was being fed the contraceptive, she was ready to go rip Irulan to pieces. Right. I think right. He, he also understood that Irulan, although it, because she wanted the child, she was against him, but she wasn't really, really against Paul. She just wanted, she was more about statehood. And she wanted the statehood to continue through the Carino line uh, the way that it should through the proper proper sources. Right. And mm-hmm. it wasn't that she wanted Paul to die or she wanted Cheney to die or Cheney to never have children. She just wanted the royal heir to come from the royal marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, correct, correct. And it may be wrong, but we, we get to hear that Shaddam has, is, is no longer here. He's no longer around or is he here? He's, I'm trying to remember. He's, um, he's, I know he's been, I, I know he was exiled, but, by the next book, he's no longer around. Right. They mentioned that he has uh, forces practicing landing. That's right. And taking off. And then Paul sends and tells Irland to write him a letter that he shouldn't do that anymore. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, so somewhere in there. But they don't. Frank Herbert does not make a big deal of his death that I remember. No, I think it's just mentioned in Children of Doom. It's like passing. I think Irland goes to the funeral. And that's it. Yeah. 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 Well, so uh, should we move on to anything else as far as plot lines or scenes that kind of uh, stick out or themes that uh, do we need to talk? I know we mentioned religion. It's obviously, you know, politics and and government, obviously, is another theme that plays into it. Self-sacrifice is the other one. Oh, yes. Uh, Because Paul's Paul's a huge thing is Paul just saying, like, I give myself to this vision of the future. It's horrible to get there, but it's more horrible if I don't give myself to right. it. And I don't have a choice because if I let go, then I lose this. There's that and then just like the general like yeah. idea of prescience and all that kind of stuff. You know, the other thing that – the one other point that I wanted to mention that there was one point that I felt like I was reading a little bit of Kevin J. Anderson and, and, and Brian Herbert. And that was the point when the face dancer kills the one girl. Yeah. Like the description of that and the deceptiveness of that felt very, uh, some of the uh, gruesome death scenes that we get in uh, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert's books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, one, one thing that I think is done better, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but since we're right there, in the Children of Dune movie, is that the scene where Lichna comes and begs of Paul, um, he listens. And just like he does in this, and then she leaves. And I love that in that scene, it's not just Paul, but Stilgar comes up and he's like face dancer, and Paul's like most definitely, and like both <laughs> of them are kind of like onto the like this this massive trick that's tricked so many people. It doesn't just get it's not just Paul that it stops like in the book, but Stilgar is also like <laughs> yeah, this isn't the real the real yeah. deal. Yeah. Well, why don't we move into some of our uh, favorite quotes. Jim, this is your baby. Do you want to lead us through us? Yeah. Uh, I see here that David has some quotes listed in our notes. You want to read those and explain yeah, sure. yourself? <laughs> um, the flesh surrenders itself. Eternity takes back, back its own. Our bodies stirred these waters briefly, danced with a certain intoxication before the love of life and self, dealt with a few strange ideas, then stumbled to the instruments of time, I'm sorry, then submitted to the instruments of time. What can we say of this? I occurred. I am not. 
yet I occurred. Uh, it's a quote from Paul, uh, musing over what's the point of time and, yeah. and doing anything. The convoluted wording of legalisms grew up around the necessity to hide our, from ourselves the violence we intend toward each other. Between depriving a man of one hour from his life and depriving him of his life there exist or between depriving a man of one hour of his, from his life and depriving him of his life, there exists only a difference of degree. You have done violence to him, consumed his energy. Elaborate euphemisms may, may conceal your intent to kill, but behind any use of power over another, the ultimate assumption remains, I feed on your energy. Ooh. Yeah, I like that Ooh. one a lot. That's so, good. Anything that you do towards someone is just like, yeah, killing uh, this next one's from B-Jazz. And he had a lot of good ones, but I really like this one when he's talking to Duncan. He says, I have said, blow out the lamp. Day is here. And you keep saying, give me a lamp so that I can find day. And I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I could have come. That's a good one. That could have been in the Bible. <laughs> like, I like, could have been. Yeah. yeah you know? uh, uh, <clears throat> can you collect chaos? Not collecting. That is the ultimate gathering. What can you gather without gathering yourself? And that was a Zen Sunni uh, That's principle. A That's yeah. a good one. I like that one. Duncan Duncan mm. said that to uh, Alia, I believe, when she was asking him some questions. I didn't. I didn't, we didn't mention this, but I love the mentat, Duncan. Yeah, I love. I love him as a mentat because we don't have that. I do. I think he's a better mentat than Paul is. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then he's. I don't know. He's more testy than um, Thufer was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Duncan kind of hurts my brain as a mentat. <laughs> <laughs> you have to think too much to try to figure out exactly what he's trying to say. I think that's the Zensuni <laughs> side of him. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 That's what okay, I had. Well, okay. Uh, Scott, how about your quotes? All right, uh, so I have a couple here. They're pretty short, and I don't have who attributed them. They're, they're, they're in Dune Messiah, though. Um, I love this one. Truth suffers from too much analysis. I thought that that was pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is another one in Dune Messiah. Again, I don't have who's saying any of these, so I'm kind of slept in that. But they are not mad. They are trained to believe, not to know. Belief can be manipulated. Only knowledge is dangerous. I think that Skytail says that. Right? Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, pretty, um, a strong one. Um, and this See, is kind of, it, go ahead. And that's funny because I would, I would say just the opposite. Belief is more dangerous than knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess uh, in this case, knowledge is dangerous to belief. Yeah. It's kind of what I, oh, is, yes. Is, is, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, reason is the first victim of strong emotion. I felt like that's like a Confucius saying. Yeah. You know, Confucius say yeah. reason is the first victim of strong emotion. <laughs> so true. Um, so true. So I have two others here. Uh, emperor, empires do not suffer emptiness of purpose at the time of their creation. It is when they have become established that aims are lost and replaced by vague ritual. I thought that was a good one. And then yeah. one more. Yeah. It, if you need something to worship, then worship life. All life, every last crawling bit of it, 
we are all in this beauty together. Yeah. Paul says that when yeah. he's thinking about why they shouldn't praise him. Yeah. That's a great line though. Anyway, so those are my those are my quotes. Good. Okay. And uh along with the Empires Do Not Suffer quote that Scott just did, I found a couple others that, that I kinda like. Uh another one was I have had a belly full of the god and priest business. You think I don't see my own mythos? Consult your data once more, hate. I have insinuated my rights into the most elementary human acts. People eat in the name of Moadib. They make love in my name. They are born in my name. Cross the street in my name. A roof beam cannot be raised in the lowliest hovel of Gang Ishri without invoking the blessing of Moadib. And that's from the Book of Diatribes from the Hate Chronicle. Can you imagine having like that happen to your name? Like in the name of Jim or the name of David, the name of Scott. I'm living it. You're like, <laughs> I don't know I think, uh, uh, Amish part I really do. Yeah. Oh, my. And then I had one more quote. <laughs> I had one more quote. It says, no matter how exotic human civilization becomes, no matter the developments of life and society, nor the complexity of the machine-human interface, there always comes interludes of lonely power when the course of humankind, the very future of humankind, depends upon the relatively uh, simple actions of single individuals. That's good. Yeah, and that's, that's very good. That's kind of like after the avalanche starts; it's a little bit uh, difficult for the. Uh, individual snowflakes to protest. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are some good quotes. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I think the one thing that this book did give us is because it was so, there was so much talk, we did end up with a lot of good quotes. Yeah, I agree. I didn't feel that the quotes, like, at the beginning of chapters were quite as pivotal for me, but there was some good conversation going on and good dialogue as Paul was kind of wrestling with this idea of being the Godhead. Yeah, I yeah, completely I, agree I with agree. that. The yeah. epigraphs weren't weren't nearly as uh, profound as they had been previously. Yeah. Oh, you know what I just thought of? It happened during this, and I thought, right there, people, right there is, your, is our argument personified. In this book, Paul makes a comment about Irulan's histories being trash and a, and a throwaway thing. So right there is all you need for your Frank Herbert proof that the quotes at the beginning of chapters of Irulan are not 100% true. Yeah, see, there you go. Let's take that, whoever it was in the comments that always writes us about that. <laughs> oh, someone is going to, we're going to get hate mail for that. We'll, uh, next listener feedback show, we'll be getting a lot to talk about that. <laughs> Thanks a lot, though, David. They, I still would like to read a compilation of Irulan's comments and her yeah. observations. It, yeah. you know, it just seems like they'd make some really good reading. You know, you should just start writing them down as you go along. You, yeah. could, you could be that person. Yeah. That, that, that and the, all the collective quotes on the orange Catholic Bible. Yeah. I think I'd rather take loot lessons. <laughs> Here we go again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, let's jump into some of our uh, final thoughts here. Any, anything else we want to add about this book before we move on? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Jim? No. 
and and I I kind of have to agree with with you guys when you say it seems like a more of an interlude between Dune and Children of Dune. Yeah. Um it's shorter, it's uh more concise, uh not very much action and it's just kind of setting up the uh the next part of the epic which is the children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and rate this book, Jim. How would you rate this book? I'd have to give it a solid four. I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed the political intrigue. I enjoyed the uh, ins and outs of everything. And it did, you know, at first I didn't like Paul very much. And then as time went on, I kind of liked him more. I didn't, when it started, I didn't like Alia very much, but I began to like her a lot more. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I have to give it a four. Out okay. Of five. Okay. How about you, Scott? <laughs> there were some good points in this book. It was much more ponderous than, uh, Dune was. I can't give this a four. Um, maybe a 3.25. Maybe. I don't know what I gave Paul of Dune. Did I give Paul of Dune a three? Was I higher? I give it a four. What? Whatever was... you did, I bumped my, my score up because uh, of your pressure. Uh, uh, anyways, I, I, I think that this is a... this when I, If I put this alongside a Dune, I, I can't give this a really high score. Yeah. Um, It doesn't mean it wasn't good. It doesn't mean I didn't enjoy parts of it. And there were certain parts that I really liked, but then there were parts I was like, well, the plot isn't holding together quite as well for me as I wish it would. Um, there's a lot of telliness and we don't get as much of the world development that we got in Dune. Um, I'm, I'm going to stick with a uh, 3.25. Okay. For me. Okay. Well, <sighs> If you say five, I'm walking out. Yeah, so this is a 5.57. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you just hear the door slam. <laughs> uh, feed just cuts out. Um, <laughs> um, this book was hard. I remember reading it the first time and reading it this time. I, I enjoy this book, and I'm not going to say that it's not a good book, but when you compare it, to the other Dune books, and that's what I really put my ratings up against. This book just doesn't feel like it holds up to Dune or the following Frank Herbert books. Um, and even I, I knew that the first time I read it too. It, it's because it's a fast read, which is a good thing. But because it's a fast read, I would jump fifteen twenty pages and be like, "Why did I just read fifteen to twenty pages?" Like not like. I don't feel like I've absorbed anything of consequence. Not even like I mean some of the some of the dialogue was good and like meaningful and stuff, but then sometimes you were just kinda like, Nothing has happened. I'm waiting for the next thing to happen. Yet that's all this book is, is waiting for the next thing to happen. And it's not gonna come now. It's gonna come later. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, this book it's a two out of five. Whoa. Yeah. Ooh. This is probably uh, we're, we're all we're all over the place in this rating. Yeah, this is probably wow. my my going to be my lowest rated book. And that's Shoot. not because it's a ba- I'm not saying it's a bad book, but I'm saying compared 
to the other Dune books so far. And I know that I had trouble. I think it was, was it House Harkonnen? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was House Harkonnen that I had trouble with. But that had more action in it. That kept me more like tied in. Because maybe because it was longer and I just kind of put up with it longer. But this yeah. one, I don't know. You know, I, I guess fortunately for Jim, uh, most of the reviews online are agreeing with him. People are giving it four out of uh, four out of five stars, three and a half out of five stars. They, people, as a general rule, like this book. Really? As well, a part you know, of it. It's a, but, it's a, if you were going to say, are you just going to rate it as a science fiction book and not against the other two books, I might bump it up to like a three or 3.5, but I'm going to, I am rating it against the other Dune books and truth be known. No. The scale yeah. goes one to five for a reason. Right. <laughs> and, hey, and you're entitled. That right? may, that may be why I'm, I am high on my rating is because I don't compare the books to each other. I take each one as its own entity. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think normally I try to do that, but with this book, I can't. I don't know why. Maybe it's just the way the book is. I just, to me, I just can't see this book on its own. You have a you have a Dune Messiah complex. I do have a Dune Messiah complex. <laughs> I do have a Dune Messiah. So, what do we think is going to happen next in Winds of Dune? Now, I have not read Winds of Dune. I have not read Winds of Dune, and and I know Jim just started it. Yeah, this, I started it. This um, so where is Winds of Dune supposed to take place? It's between Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. All right. It's focused on, like, Paul of Dune was Paul. This is supposed to be Irulan, or it's either Irulan or Alia. One of the two is is the main focus. It will be interesting to see how, if it is Alia... It'll be interesting to see how she rises to the status that she has mm-hmm. at the beginning of Children. Mm-hmm. If it's Irulan, it'll be interesting to see how she handles playing nursemaid to the children right. that are not really her children now that Paul is gone. Right. Right. Jim. So those those are the uh, two things I'm looking to see how they play out, mm-hmm. and especially now that how does the world exist without their Messiah? Mm-hmm. How about you, Jim? Well, I as you said, I I started to read this, so I have a little bit of uh, prescience into what's uh, going on already. But <laughs> um, uh, barring that, if if I look back. Before I started reading the book, my con- concept of what I think would be going on was that everybody is going to sort out what their roles are uh, as far as the children are concerned. Okay, At the end of Dune Messiah, Irulan is uh, ready to take on the role of educating the children. Alia is going to take on the role of ruling the, the universe and... Um, um, Stilgar is going to, you know, uh, take care of the Fremen thing, and Duncan is going to advise Alia as a mentat. So mm-hmm. I, I just kind of see a distribution of where the power is going to lie and how it's going to be used. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Roland, Roland in the chat room is saying that he thought the focus of the book was Jessica. 
Now, I was under the impression. Uh, he, he said it was originally called Jessica of Dune. I, I, if I remember correctly, Jessica of Dune is one of the four books that were to be written in the series. And that, that was the last book to be written. I don't remember where it was supposed to stand. That it went, it was supposed to be Paul, Irulan, and Alia, and then uh, Throne of Dune, which is focuses on Leto the Second after Children of Dune, and then uh, there was supposed to be a fourth one that focused on uh, Caladan and Jessica. And those two have not been written. The last those two. two, like those, they went and they started writing the school books instead. And I don't know if it was because. And, and- in deference to Roland, at the point I am at now, um, Jessica does play a very prominent role in this book. Uh, if I could be a little, just a little spoilery, um, at this point, at the point I'm at, uh, Jessica and Alia have resolved some differences that, that had been between them. Hmm. Yeah, they don't stay resolved. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, okay, don't. Don't tell me that. No. <laughs> you read Children of Dune, didn't you? I did a long time ago. Okay. Real right. long time ago. All right. I'm, I'm looking. Irulan is one of my favorite characters because of who she is in Children of Dune. I'm really excited to see her move that, that way. I'm excited also to see Alia be a strong character without being the character that she's in. She becomes in Children of Dune. So we shall see what's there so i guess that about wraps us up so it's time to do our uh end of the show type things um we have two things that uh, we always like to talk about and the first is our app why don't you talk about our app yeah so zog pod collective we have an app where the episodes are put up there and you can listen to them download them star them your favorite it's a collection it's called the zog pod collective because it's a collective of a couple different podcasts Primarily the Sci-Fi Diner podcast, but also the Dune Saga podcast and all the extras that you can download there, star and call into the show and let us know your feedback and we can um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it on our listener feedback show, which we'll be recording next. Yeah. So it's a great play to get that. It's available in iTunes, Android, wherever good apps are sold. And the best thing about this app is it is free. free. Free, so that's always good. Free is yeah. good. Yeah. And what else? Well, we also have to talk about our Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash podcast, you will find our Patreon page. Uh, what Patreon is, it's uh, a way for you, the listeners, to help support the show if you choose to. We'll always provide the show for free. But uh, if you would like to help us out in some of our uh, costs and, and stuff like that, if you feel... Like that, and you know, a dollar a show, a dollar a month is, uh, it would be a huge help for us. So, patreon.com slash Dune Soccer Podcast, and there are different types of rewards for if, uh, you want to go to certain levels. Uh, once you're a Patreon supporter, you get a, a look at some of our behind the scenes stuff, uh, maybe some inside jokes a little bit earlier than other people would get them, uh, such as a, a certain famous internet meme featuring Jim. Oh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you know, that was on there uh, a couple weeks before it, it hit the rest of the internet, uh, as well as options to have, you know, private chats or even be on the show. Or if you reach the 
all-powerful level of loot lessons, I mean, there's that too. Yeah. So thousand dollars per episode. Thousand dollars per episode. So it's a <laughs> if it ever gets there. But, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, guys. You know, uh, I broke a string on the loot today, and I could really use a restring job. So let's get on that Patreon. Let's get on the. There yeah. we go. There we go. Yeah. So Patreon.com/slash Dune Saga Podcast, or follow any of the links to it uh, on our website doingpsychopodcast.com now if you've got something you want to talk about uh, about respond to something we said maybe uh, chew me out from my comment earlier on Frank saying that Irulan's writings were worth nothing um, or any type of response to the book we're reading or whatever for our listener feedback show there are several ways that you can do that uh, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at podcast. You can comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash podcast, Or you can call our all-powerful voicemail line and leave us a voicemail. And the number for that is... 126-0577-CHAT. That's 126-0577-2428. There you go. Call now. <laughs> Operators are standing by. Yeah. Jim, when he's not playing the loot, he just sits by the phone. Just waiting for a call. Wait for you to call. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he has no life. <laughs> it's, it's None whatsoever. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, please, we love to hear your feedback. I mean, uh, it's, it's great. We love to share it with everyone else. We love the conversation going on. Remember that you can always... Join us live for our recording at dunesagapodcast.com slash live. To find yeah. out when we're recording next, go to dunesagapodcast.com. There's a, a nice little calendar right there on the side of the webpage that shows when the next time we'll be recording. And we update it when we change it. Yep. So. And it's Eastern time. Yep. Uh, just so you know, uh, you can join in the chat there with many people uh, and uh, take part in the conversation. Absolutely. All right. Well, once again, for the Dune Saga Podcast, I'm Scott Herzog. I'm David Moulton. And I'm Jim Arrowwood, and may Shai Hulud clear the path before you. <laughs>